Today on Not Cleared, we're joined by Fred Flights, president and CEO of the Center for Security Policy. He describes what it's like to work in the intelligence community, what it takes to be a good analyst, and how to get a job at the CIA. He also updates us on what's going on in Afghanistan and Iran. We are joined by Fred Flights, the president and CEO of the Center for Security Policy. Fred, thanks for joining us. Hey, Matt, good to be here. So we'll just start right off the bat. How did you get a job at the CIA and what made you want to start working there? I was interested in foreign policy and national security in high school and in college. I remember the CIA recruiter came to my undergraduate uh, college, St. Joseph, Joseph's University in Philadelphia, and I didn't get an offer. And then I went to Fordham for graduate school, and uh, I did. W- what was interesting about that was that um, I interviewed at a nondescript building in Manhattan because there were protests against the CIA at Fordham when I interviewed in the mid-80s, and and there were professors on campus who would actually uh, uh, penalize students who they thought were conservatives, never mind wanting to work for the CIA. So I found out from an early age it was better as a conservative to be discreet and not to let politically, uh, politically correct professors know of my conservatism. So why do you think there was that stigma against conservatives? Because it seems like that's more of a recent phenomenon, but... Or maybe not. It is not. And, and Morgan's right. It's not. It, it gets more play right now. But I learned from my time as an undergrad that there was enormous pressure by uh, liberals in who were teaching uh, to get you to think the way they did. There was incredible intolerance of conservative ideas. I think it's worse now. The nice thing when I went to school at St. Joe's is that there were a number of conservative professors who fought back against this, but they've all retired now, and there aren't many conservative professors left where I went to school. I think if I went to school there now, I'd I'd be in a lot of trouble because there was no one I could turn to uh, who would fight back against these intolerant liberals. And it's concerning because something as important as the CIA that's handling our national intelligence, that shouldn't be partisan at all, right? No, and it's worth talking about politics in the CIA. Uh, You know, there's this urban legend in the media and among Democrats that we can go to the CIA for objective assessments of almost any topic, the coronavirus, WMD in Iraq or Iran, because the CIA is trustworthy and there's no politics. Well, the CIA is a bureaucracy just like any other bureaucracy. It's less political than other government agencies. But there's ambitious people, there's political people, the CIA has to compete for budget with other agencies, and there is lots of politics. And I, the CIA was created to advise the president on foreign policy, not to uh, adjudicate policy differences or to be the, the font of truth on an issue. When the CIA says something's true, that's their opinion. It doesn't mean it can't be debated. And as we know, the CIA has often been wrong. So what was your first job at the CIA? Well, my first job was working on international organizations in the UN, and I I joined the CIA at a time in the 80s when the UN was regarded as a spy den that was trying to undermine U.S. policy. And I joined just after President Reagan had expelled hundreds of Soviet diplomats from the United Nations and the Soviet mission to the UN because they were using their diplomatic assignments to spy against the United States. I also wrote analysis to help policymakers achieve their goals at the UN. I worked very closely 
with the George H.W. Bush administration during the first Iraq war, we got a resolution endorsing our effort to, to drive Iraq from Kuwait, but that took intelligence support. And, and people don't realize that there are many different ways an analyst can work, and we provide policy support to, to policymakers working on a variety of questions, including in international organizations. Just going back for people that are not familiar with the CIA, what are the different sections of the CIA? What is specifically what does an analyst do? Well, I was in the Directorate of Intelligence. I think it has another name now. That's where the analysts are. There's the Directorate of Operations. They collect information. That is, they steal secrets. They also conduct covert action on some occasions, uh, maybe some type of kinetic attack on a terrorist base. There's the Director of Science and Technology, at least there used to be, it may have been renamed, that um, invents and, 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 and comes up with some really ingenious spy devices. And then there's the Director of Administration. As an analyst, it was my job to look at classified and unclassified information to provide analysis for policymakers to help them get their job done. What, what I would typically, typically do would be to come in in the morning, turn my computer on, look, in, look at all the intelligence that came in overnight, look at all the press, I'd read a lot of newspapers and magazines, and decided there's something I have to write for current intelligence for the day. That's something that needs to be out the following morning that policymakers need to do their job. And sometimes you put out something even maybe immediately. I wrote for something called the National Intelligence Daily, which is now called the, the, the Wire. It was like a daily intelligence newspaper. And for the President's Daily Brief, that's a, a very highly classified daily intelligence publication produced for the president and a very small number of senior officials. Getting into that is very difficult, and uh, basically by 10 or 11 a.m. in the morning, you go to the, your managers to, t to try to make your case for an article you wanted to place in one of these publications. They would re review it with management, and by 5 p.m., you would go up to uh, the seventh floor of the building, the top floor, and talk to a senior editor to see the final edits on your piece, and it would be published the next morning. So the President's Daily Brief, that's the main piece of intelligence that the president is getting each day, and that's what they're, in theory, basing their foreign policy or intelligence around that? Well, intelligence is based on many types of publications and products. This is the principal product for the president, but I wouldn't say that it, it is necessarily driving policy because there are so many policymakers. There's so many forms of intelligence that goes out. I might add that the President's Daily Brief has changed a lot since I was an analyst. After the creation of the Director of National Intelligence in the mid-2000s, uh, this new bureaucracy took over the PDB, and it became a group product of every intelligence agency. And, and I regret that there was an effort to transform it into a, a publication that would be fair to every agency, so every agency would have a chance to get in front of the president rather than putting in the best information. And, and many agencies really didn't have much to add. I was, all, I was on the House Intelligence Committee for five years, and I was just amazed how all these agencies would use metrics of the number of PDB items they had published to justify their budgets. I, I think we've gotten away from the, the actual mission of this publication. It's my hope that a future Republican president will fix that. So prior to the DNI, it was just a CIA product? It, yes, it was, and other agencies hated that. And when the 9-11 Commission uh, w was started, there were representatives of other government agencies, other intelligence agencies, who wanted to fix that. They didn't like the fact that the CIA had had sole control of the PDB. Now, 
PDB items would be coordinated. That is, they would be cleared with other agencies, but the CIA had the final say, and that was taken away from the CIA and given to this large bureaucracy, and it's become a bureaucratic product, and I think that's a shame. Why do people always think that bureaucratizing something is a way to improve it? Well, the problem is that I, I, maybe it's human nature, or maybe it's just the way that, that bureaucracies grow, but the CIA was nimble and capable of doing things at a moment's notice when it was smaller, but as it got larger and and more people got involved in it, it became bureaucratized, it became risk-averse, and it became harder for the organization to do things that were risky or to do things quickly that needed to be done. I've heard people say we should just tear the CIA down and start over. I, that's not where I am. But the bureaucracy at the CIA, and especially the director of national intelligence, are real obstacles to effective intelligence support to protecting our nation. And I, I propose a number of ways to reform this. My articles are on National Review Online if you want to check them out. A lot has to be done by the next Republican president. So when delivering the president's daily brief, is that usually given directly to the president, or is that something that just one of his higher-up aides is going to be reading and briefing him on eventually? A senior intelligence official will bring the PDB to the president. Uh, sometimes that official will bring analysts with him or her. Uh, sometimes the CIA director and the director of national intelligence will come for this briefing. That was usually the case for President Trump. Trump did not get the PDB every day, but he got it more than Obama and Clinton, who didn't get it at all. Obama and Clinton thought they were smarter than the intelligence community. They didn't bother to take their briefing, their PDB briefings or to read the PDB. They had a senior official read it and brief them later. And I remember this got back to analysts at the CIA during the Clinton administration. All these times Clinton was supposed to be receiving the PDB. He was jogging or doing something else. Uh, and I remember th these... These examples of Clinton skipping his PDB briefings became so scandalous and started leaking that the CIA stopped telling, stopped giving analysts feedback on, on, on the PDB from Clinton because they were worried it would get to the press. Basically, they were trying to hide Clinton's behavior. It's just surprising because to everyone listening to this, they probably would kill to get their hands on this just because of all the classified intelligence and quote unquote cool stuff that would be in it. So it's kind of perplexing why a president wouldn't take this super seriously. You know, it's interesting you, you say that, Matt. A lot of policymakers, when they see intelligence analysis, say, hey, I just read this in the New York Times. What's in this that I don't already know? Oh, there, interesting. There's some added content. I remember John Bolton telling me that when I would bring him intelligence in the different jobs he was in. He would say, well, why am I reading this? There's nothing new here. I might add, the PDB has also changed. It is now on a tablet. And they're usually one-page analyses, but now the PDB has links to longer publications that the reader can read on the tablet. Uh, so if you want to have real in-depth uh, reading and background on an issue, you don't have to confine yourself just to a simple piece. And I know that because when I was at the National Security Council uh, working for President Trump, I had access to the PDB, and they brought me this tablet every day. And I read all of it. I thought it was great. But I think a, you know, a president, a very senior official, wouldn't have the time to go through all this material. How wide, how widely distributed is the PDB? I think I remember a story about George W. Bush trying to decide how many people should get it, and his father was advising him and had been a director of the CIA and was horrified at how widely 
the Clinton administration had dispersed it. Um, I should fact check that story. But how, how many people get it? That, that's an excellent question. Uh, in the Obama administration, there were a huge number of people. I think it was probably uh, 40 or 50 recipients. I would bet under the George W. Bush administration, it may have been like eight. Wow. And I think Trump was probably in the 30 to 40 range. If I got it and I was not that senior, I have to think there were quite a few people who had access to that PDB uh, uh, tablet. But I might also add that I found out that the PDB I got was not the same as Trump's. Mm. There was some material that was for the president's eyes only that would be in the president's version of the PDB. There was some material that was... Um, maybe only four people would see the president, the vice president, the secretary of state and secretary of defense. So I saw the PDB, but I can't claim I saw the and what I saw is very sensitive. But there were ultra sensitive versions that mm -hmm. I did not have access to. And the DNI is the one making all those decisions. Yes, the DNI, the CI director used to have the authority on classifying, declassifying information. And this was uh, given to him by the president who, who has ultimate authority. But when the DNI was created, he was given that authority to classify, declassify. So we've talked about what goes into preparing the president's daily brief. What, I guess, traits or characteristics would a good analyst need in order to be preparing intelligence that is being delivered to the highest public official? Well, I, I want to first say working in intelligence was an incredible honor. And it is a position of great responsibility and great trust. The CIA is looking for people of good character. Uh, law-abiding citizens who will protect sometimes incredibly sensitive information, information that if it's leaked, lives could be lost. It's, it's very serious business. We have director of operations people extracting information from foreigners, stealing information. And if their identities were known in some countries, they'd be executed. So this is serious business. An analyst has to have good writing skills. If you're going to be an analyst, you better have good writing skills. You have to practice them and develop them while you're in, while you're in college, if, if not sooner. You have to be pretty well-versed in global affairs. And I, I would advise anyone who applies for a CIA job, if you get that interview, you better be able to discuss the major national security questions facing our nation and have opinions on it. It's not that difficult if you're reading a, the newspaper every day, keeping up with, with foreign affairs. And I think you also have to know, understand what the CIA's mission is, why it exists, what it's supposed to be doing. It's advising the president and senior advisors to keep our nation safe and free. And uh, we're looking at a dangerous world. Why do we have an organization that's, that steals secrets, that convinces other nations to commit treason, to give information to our country? Because we live in a dangerous world and our enemies are doing this. And it's absolutely essential we have this information because we know the Chinese and the Russians and the Cubans and the Iranians and North Koreans, uh, if, if, an if they had an opportunity to take our nation down, we know they would. How would you compare the CIA to other countries that you just mentioned, their intelligence communities in terms of extracting information, mainly from the U.S.? I'll just say that we have a very, very talented and capable intelligence uh, community. The CIA is very good. But I, I will say that I know foreign intelligence services are surprisingly good too. China, Russia, Cuba, uh, they, have, they also have extraordinary, Israel, they also have extraordinary capabilities. And I, I guess that's something that CIA officers and other intelligence officers are told over and over again, do not underestimate the capabilities of the intelligence services of our adversaries. One thing that's come up, especially in recent years, that has been a growing concern 
uh, from Americans is whether or not our intelligence community is spying on Americans. What does the CIA do that? That's become a big issue lately, not just the CIA, but other intelligence agencies. The charter of these intelligence agencies makes it very clear that they are foreign intelligence agencies. They are to collect information from foreign actors, foreign citizens to protect our nation, and they're not allowed to collect information against American citizens. And to to a great extent, that has been true. But we know there's been violations of that. Uh, and I was just talking to Ambassador Pete Hoekstra about this today on a radio show. When an American is mentioned in a national security agency report, the NSA steals electronic uh, communications, that name has to be uh, blocked. It has to be blacked, blackened out. Um, there's a process for a policymaker to see that name, but it's a very serious matter when we unmask the name of an American in an intelligence report because there are privacy concerns. And it, it's it's obvious that American names are sometimes going to be accidentally caught up in an intelligence report. But the Obama administration went out of its way to unmask the names of Americans, Americans who were working for Donald Trump's campaign, to leak them to the press to, to try to keep Trump from winning. And there are other examples of that, of, of intelligence agencies being used for political purposes by policymakers and sometimes by intelligence officers. It's not the norm, but it is a, a, a huge violation of the charter of these organizations. So just to explain that a bit more, so, so theoretically, if the NSA caught was monitoring a terrorist's communications and he called his dry cleaner and that was an American citizen, the dry cleaner's name would be masked and he would have nothing to do with anything else. But theoretically, if that name were unmasked and he was associated, it could look like he was involved in some way. You know, that's right. But let's let's talk about the most important example of this, Tucker Carlson. Okay. Tucker Carlson was trying to arrange an interview of Russian President Putin. And the NSA collected information on that, apparently, according to the press. And someone in the Biden administration saw that, asked for the uh, masked name of Carlson. It, was, it probably said an American journalist contacted the Russian, Russian embassy about a meeting, found out it was Carlson, and leaked this information to the press. It's outrageous that a Biden administration official would do that. And it is equally outrageous that the NSA would agree to ever release the name of an American journalist to a policymaker unless, unless there was some grave national security reason. Lives were at risk. A terrorist attack was about to occur. I think there's a lot of fault to go around here. The, the NSA inspector general is looking into this. And, you know, it was so foolish of NSA to do this. Everyone knows Carlson is extremely critical of the U.S. intelligence community. He already thought they were spying on the American people. But to hand him this was just a gift. He's been talking about it constantly. It did a lot of damage to NSA's reputation. My hope is that there will be tough rules in place to stop that from happening. And the Biden administration will explain its procedures for unmasking the names of Americans from intelligence reports. And I feel like in this situation, so the NSA shouldn't have leaked Tucker's name to begin with, but if they did, like they ended up ultimately doing, they could have put a caveat that said, yeah, this was Tucker, but he was just trying to interview Putin. It's not like he was colluding with him or any way, right? But that's the idea is to make him look bad, right? Well, NSA unmasked him to this one particular Biden official. I think it was one official, maybe more than one official asked. So NSA did not leak it. NSA re responded to a request for this name. 
But in my view, NSA should have said, no, we don't, we don't tell you the name of journalists. What's your reason for wanting to know which journalist it is? And when it was given to this official, NSA certainly told him, this is extremely sensitive. You cannot release the name of this person, of this American to anyone. We told this to just for your own new use to understand the intelligence report. What are the guidelines for unmasking someone? Can you just, if, you, if you're curious, you can just do it if you're a senior official? The, I haven't been involved in that because I helped uh, unmask some names for a U.S. official at the State Department. They were all legitimate. None of them were leaked. After the abuse of this process by the Biden administration, and I might add that Biden's ambassador to the U.N. made hundreds of unmasking requests, many of them of Trump campaign officials. Why would a U.N. ambassador need to know that? I, I, I still am trying to figure that out. So... After the scandal, the Trump administration put very strict rules in place for unmasking. There had to be a written request. The reason had to be provided. It would be reviewed by senior NSA officials, and I think senior NSC officials, National Security Council officials. I don't know whether the Biden administration did away with that policy or whether they're just not implementing it, but Biden officials have to explain what are what is their policy on protecting the identities of American citizens mentioned in U.S. intelligence reports. Um, are America's enemies trying to penetrate the CIA? Definitely, definitely. Uh, there was a story, and I wrote about this for um, the Center for Security Policy a few years ago, of a, a student who was studying in China who was recruited by the Chinese and coached to apply to join the CIA. And the CIA caught him because he failed the polygraph. Mm. This is not the only example of... of uh, our adversary trying to get people into the CIA. I think the, the, what they use, which is easier, is try to recruit a CIA employee whose vulnerabilities, maybe maybe an alcoholic, family problems, debt. You know, these foreign intelligence services find out about this. They may not reveal who they really are, but they have ways of trying to co-opt uh, U.S. citizens to work against their their country. Now, you know, ninety nine point ninety nine percent of Americans will not fall for that. But there are examples of people like Aldra James, a former CIA official who had money problems and was an alcoholic, who the, the Russians successfully recruited as an asset. Actually, he volunteered his services to the yeah. Russians. But there's others who were recruited by the Russians and by other intelligence services, and you know they are looking for vulnerabilities. So the CIA l reviews its personnel every year. There's a, there's a reinvestigation process uh, you have to declare your finances. You have to declare foreign contacts. So there's a process the U.S. government has to to protect itself from this kind of thing happening. But it, it's a it's always an ongoing concern. Well, to on that front, we touched on this a bit, but we constantly get questions about how, you know, most of our interns and stuff want to work for the CIA or another intelligence agency at some point. So what? Um, would be your advice for someone that wanted to get hired? What is the clearance process like? Well, aside from what I've just told you, typically people apply online through the CIA website. There are other websites for other intelligence agencies that you can find online. It's important when you're applying to have attachments of, of a, if you're going to be an analyst, you want to be an analyst, of a, of a very well-written paper on a topic of interest to the CIA or related to the job that you want to do. If you have a, 
your your professor saying a plus well done on the paper that would that would be good too i i, I don't think you should shy away from that the application process uh, is um it's a long series of screens you have to fill in to to uh, to get hired and it's important that the writing be perfect that you really put a lot of time in it not rush through it another thing is you can't tell people you're applying don't tell your roommate <laughs> <laughs> why is that well you the CIA may want to put you undercover. They may oh, okay. they may want a lot of our CIA officers do not acknowledge the CIA employment. There's a process where they appear to be working for another agency that allows them to travel and and uh, not be detected by foreign intelligence services. In many cases, the foreign intelligence services can see through cover, but cover is very important for people in the Directorate of Operations. Uh, their their uh, friends may never know that a particular individual ever worked for uh, an intelligence agency. So it's 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 good when you're applying that you do not tell people you're applying because you don't know where the CIA will want to put you. But it is still important, very, very important, that all the written documents you submit are extremely well written. The, the, the website process is very long. Take your time. Do it right. So let's say you submit an A-plus paper. You look great on paper, but you maybe have an alcohol problem or financial problems, or you have had those in the past, that's something that the CIA is also taking into account then, right? There's going to be questions about that, and you, they will put they put you through an FBI investigation. Uh, they will interview your, your friends and neighbors. It will appear to be an FBI investigation. No one will understand who it is who's asking questions about you. Uh, so you're not going to be able to hide that kind of material, and they will put you through a polygraph. Uh, so there are a lot of hoops to jump through uh, to, to get in, into the organization. As I said, the CIA and the other intelligence agents are looking for pe other intelligence agencies are looking for people of good character, law-abiding individuals who can be uh, trusted to to protect some very sensitive national security information. For college students, especially, what should they know about um, drug use being disqualifying from intelligence jobs? I'd say don't use drugs. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good policy. You know, I don't know what the cutoff point is there. I, I think students who, who smoke pot in college, there's the CIA is going to understand that. But uh, heavier drugs, I think in many cases it's going to be disqualifying. But I, I, I don't know what the cutoff would be. So if you're really serious about it, maybe just don't do drugs at all in, co in I think college. The, I think generally the, view, <laughs> the position should be don't do drugs. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, what kind of education is helpful? What kind of majors... The CIA hires people with quite a variety of majors, not just international relations. They hire a lot of economists, mm -hmm. and it's hard to keep them because economists usually have other places they can work. I, I knew a, a very good guy who was a CIA economist for a few years, and he didn't think he was promoted fast enough, and he got a much better paying job with a bank. Uh, we need people who have languages, especially difficult languages. That's a tremendous advantage for getting your, your foot in the door. Some of the jobs people don't have skills for, such as imagery analysts. Uh, if you have good grades in college, you have a good understanding of international affairs, the CIA may hire someone and then train you in a specialized skill like that, where you would be looking at um, imagery from spy satellites and interpreting what it means. I think uh, good grades, good writing skills, um, good character, uh, those are the things that will help you qualify. Is there a point where you're too old to apply or, you know, is it only the young people that that can get hired? Is there a cutoff point? There's really no cutoff point for analysts, although it's it's sort of unusual for 
uh, older folks to be hired as analysts, but I've, I've seen uh, people in their 50s and 60s be hired in, in, uh, to be analysts on, on, in certain fields because we simply couldn't find the expertise uh, for, for people who were younger. The cutoff to be a director of operations officer, uh, I think, is still 35. Uh, you need specialized training to be a field to be a, to go into the field for the CIA. I think you could probably be a director of operations officer if you only worked at headquarters and be older. But there's a 35 year old there's a 35 year cutoff if you're going to be uh, field trained. In the beginning, we talked about how you experienced the politicization at St. Joe's. Um, and I know we said that ideally there wouldn't be politics in an intelligence community like the CIA. Could you speak on whether or not you saw that in your time there? Most of the time I didn't, but I, I did see some pretty uh, disturbing examples of it. I was subjected to some uh, pretty severe um, retaliation during the Clinton administration days because I wouldn't go along with efforts to slant intelligence to say what the Clinton White House uh, wanted to hear. I don't want to get into that here. Um, I've seen that happen from time to time. It, it isn't the norm, but it does go on. And I, I'm, I, I'm hoping that that the intelligence community has done a better job since I left to police itself and to have channels to look at politicization. Now, one example of politicization came up in early 2021 when D&I Radcliffe released a, a report by politicization ombudsman and this ombudsman found that intelligence officers were deliberately playing down analysis that suggested and intel and, and intelligence that suggested that China wanted to meddle in the 2020 presidential election and were playing up weak intelligence that Russia wanted to meddle and they did this because they they didn't like Donald Trump they didn't want Trump to win they didn't want to produce analysis that would help him win. I'm afraid I saw that when I was at the CIA, but I was sort of heartened that at least someone's admitting that this is going on. And, you know, the problem with that going on is that it will discourage a future president from trusting the CIA when they really need it. The CIA can't let that kind of thing happen. And, and I'm, I'm hoping there was a serious review within the building after that report and steps will be taken to uh, prevent that from happening in the future. Well, for those that are analysts at any intelligence agency and are seeing things like that go on, what advice would you give them? What are the steps for being a whistleblower or trying to correct some of those issues? Well, I was a whistleblower, and I brought some pretty serious concerns about the issues I mentioned. And I recently gave advice to whistleblowers at the National Security Agency. Tucker Carlson found out about the fact that the NSA was collecting his his personal communications and that this this material was being leaked from an NSA whistleblower. I would advise anyone who knew knows of serious wrongdoing in intelligence agencies to bring it to the attention of the House or Senate Intelligence Committee, especially the, the House Intelligence Committee. Go to the Republican staff. Tell them what you need to tell them. They can meet with you in a secure room. This This happens all the time. When I was on the House Intelligence Committee staff, whistleblowers who come to see us. It can be done without violating any security regulations. It has to be done carefully because some intelligence staff report back to intelligence agencies. You have to be careful how you, how you do this. If someone out there wants to be an intelligence whistleblower and doesn't know how, please contact me. I've made this offer in writing in, in my recent articles in The Federalist. I, I believe if you're an intelligence officer, 
and you see serious wrongdoing, you have an obligation to speak out, even though it may compromise your career, may end your career. And it nearly ended my career, but I had some courageous officials within the CIA who stood by me, and it didn't. But it was touch and go there for a while. <laughs> All right, should we go through some CIA myths really quick? So myth number one, you must speak a foreign language to work at the CIA. Well, I know that's true because I don't speak one. <laughs> uh, I've studied French and Spanish and other languages when I've traveled, but I, I, I don't speak one. It is certainly strongly encouraged, but it is, it is not a requirement. Um, myth number two, all CIA employees are spies. I think a spy is a director of operations officer. I was an analyst. I, I looked at information and wrote uh, assessments for senior officials. Uh, I was a CIA officer. I don't believe I was a spy. Okay. Myth number three, you can't have a family as an operations officer. That isn't true. Uh, many, and also many operations officers marry other operations officers. <laughs> uh, my wife I met at the CIA, I might add, as an analyst. Her parents were in the director of operations. Both of them? Both of them, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, they lived abroad on a, at an, on, a, on a number of assignments, so that's not true either. Okay, myth number four, you must keep your job a secret. That's often true if you are in the director of operations, but even if you're not, if you are an overt officer working for the director of intelligence, the CIA will encourage you not to play this up, not to put it online, not, not to basically raise your profile for troublemakers in foreign governments. Would you ever have to keep it a secret from your spouse? That's, that would be fairly unusual. Okay. I'm not aware that, that that's required, but there are sensitive director of operations jobs where you may not be able to tell other family members. Okay. Uh, myth number five, the life of a spy is dangerous. It can be. And uh, from my travels for, for the CIA and uh, the House Intelligence Committee, I, I have uh, met operations officers who have engaged in some very dangerous work. And uh, they are heroes who have who have done extraordinary things to keep our nation safe and free. I can't tell you what they've done, uh, but there are people out there who are working awfully hard and taking a lot of risks to defend this nation. Um, myth number six: Spies often kill people. It American is, spies. I it add. is illegal for intelligence officers to 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 kill people. There is a rule against assassinations. But having said that, the CIA does engage in covert actions. CIA officers have uh, been pilots of drones in some situations when the U.S. military uh, cannot, and obviously people were killed when that when that happened. Okay, last one. Working as a spy is action-filled and exciting. Well, you'd, you'd think that from watching the Jack Ryan movies <laughs> and, and you know CIA, CIA analysts go all around the world shooting people and jumping out of helicopters. Yeah, he's not even an ops officer. Right? No, he was in it. Yeah, he and I know many of us who were analysts kept thinking like this is this is incredible. Why is my job not that exciting? <laughs> you know, it's it's fulfilling, but you know, I don't want to say it's action filled. Maybe there's, I, I guess some operations officers have jobs that are action filled, but I, I think it's fulfilling and it's meaningful. And I, I think that's, that's better in, in, in terms of how you want to structure your life than action filled and exciting. Right. But you'd also not want to draw attention to yourself, right? That's, that's quite important. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be successful in the CIA, you really need to live a low key life. Uh, you, you can't run around and I mean they're not going to let you do interviews on television saying you're a CIA officer but there's other things you have to do you know another thing we're talking about what 
uh, potential CIA uh, employees should do, people are going to apply, you got to watch your social media. Yeah. If your social media is full of all, all kinds of embarrassing stuff, I don't need to get into the details here, you know, this, the agency's going to check. And it's better to think ahead when you post some obnoxious stuff that we know some people post to their social media accounts in college. Yeah. So I think to wrap up the discussion of the CIA and your time there, I know some people today would say that the intelligence community and politics in general have become too politicized and they wouldn't recommend people trying to get a job there. What would you recommend? Especially if they're conservative. I strongly recommend trying to work for the CIA. The vast, vast majority of CIA officers are not political. They don't care who controls the White House. They don't, they don't care who the president is. They're working to defend our nation. They're doing very, very serious work. They're often working for the agency and other agencies for decades. And we need people of high character of every political stripe working in our intelligence community to keep it safe. It's a shame that a small number of people who have politicized the mission have led to the things that you've said, Matt, because that's not what's going on here. And and I believe, at least I want the Center for Security Policy to double down to encourage patriotic Americans to work for the CIA and for all federal agencies. Uh, you know, the view right now is the government is the swamp and it's evil, it's working against the American people. Well, if that's the view conservatives take and we discourage conservatives from working there, it's going to get much worse. Right. Um, one more note on people wanting to work for the CAA. I know you said, you've mentioned in the past that recruiters are really helpful. So um, if you don't have a recruiter at your school, how can you find one? Well, it's much better if you can hand a resume to a human being. Because when you apply online, you're going to be considered, but you get a big advantage sometimes if you can see a, a, a recruiter. If your college doesn't have a recruiter, you should go to the jobs office and ask them, can the recruiter come to uh, your school? Or can they arrange for you to get an interview or to attend a job fair at a nearby school where the CIA recruiter will be attending? It's definitely worth going out of your way to do this. In the Washington, D.C. area, it's embarrassing. There's so many (laughs) career fairs with CIA, CIA officers, and I don't think the rest of the country is getting that attention. I wish that was the case. I was considered to be director of national intelligence with President Trump. That was something I was going to fix. And if I ever get into a senior intelligence position, that's going to be a priority. I want to see recruiters go to a far larger number of schools in the heartland, outside of the coast, outside of of, of the Washington, D.C. area. Yeah. Well, before we let you go, we wanted to ask you about Iran and Afghanistan. Um, starting with Iran, what do you make of the latest escalation in the Middle East? I thought that it couldn't get worse with the Iranian leadership, that Supreme Leader Khamenei, he pulls the string. So this this recent election in June of 2021 of uh, Raisi is not going to make, make a difference. Well, it has made a difference. Raisi is far more radical, far more hardline, far more interested in provocations and attacks than his predecessor. And I believe Hamani put him in there for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, Iran is, is facing extreme instability right now because of mismanagement, uh, Trump's sanctions, and a, and, and a huge water shortage. I believe he wanted someone to be the president who would crack down internally. I also believe that uh, Hamani is looking for a leadership who is going to confront the international community while there is a weak U.S. president. Uh, 
and maybe do so to create distractions from the challenges at home. Mm. So this morning, President Raisi um, named a hardliner as foreign minister in Germany, has warned Iran not to squander the opportunity to for nuclear talks. It seems like the Biden administration has made it really clear that they're willing to give Iran whatever they want. So why wouldn't they take advantage of that? It's perplexing that the Iranian government hasn't seized on this opportunity to let the Biden administration appease it, because Biden wants to do that. Right. This, this nuclear deal, it, 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 it's almost like a religious issue for Democrats. They are for it because Obama was for it and Trump pulled out of it, and they don't really care what Iran does. But Iran is not interested in making a deal. I, I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. I don't think Iran was ever serious about stopping their nuclear program. There's a huge amount of evidence that it's been cheating on, on, on the 2015 nuclear deal. I also believe that the Iranian regime believes that they'll make a deal with the Biden administration. Biden will lose in 2024, and the fir- on the first day in office, the next Republican president will pull out of the deal. And I'll tell you, the Center for Security Policy will, will do, do everything possible to make sure that that happens. So the Iranians may just think that they don't need this agreement. And, and, and a final point is, and this is something Democrats don't understand, the Iranians hate the United States, no matter who the president is, no matter what party holds the White House. The Iranians don't see a big difference between Obama and Trump and Biden. I mean, they hated Trump intensely, but they hate Biden too, because Biden represents a, an American-led world that they reject. Uh, Iran is, a, is at war with the modern world, with Sunni Islam, with Europe, with the United States. And it's not interested in making a deal with Biden. It has no interest in making Biden look good or, 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 or helping his presidency. Iran would like to destroy the United States if it could. So you mentioned earlier that, and it's very apparent if you pay attention to the news, that the Biden administration is desperately trying to get back into the JCPOA. Is it simply just because it was something Obama started and Trump ended and they want to do it just to spite Trump? Or is there anything substantive that the United States would gain from rejoining this deal? I think it's principally because Trump pulled out of it and they're angry about that. I think Obama joined the deal because Obama wanted to work with Iran to bring stability to the Middle East. There may be some people in the Biden administration who believe that, but I think Biden's foreign policy is much more simplistic and and irrational than that. Basically, so much of what Biden is doing is to undo what Trump did. It's just not in the interest of this nation. And it it just makes... When Biden administrations give their just their justification for issues like this, it just doesn't make any sense because it's fairly clear they don't have a reason for what they're doing other than the fact that they hate Trump. And they're going off of that. There was a piece in Bloomberg last week that um, basically says that a few U.S. and European officials believe that Iran could be so close to acquiring a nuclear weapon that even if they did want to rejoin the JCPOA, they may not because it wouldn't be beneficial to them anymore. Iran reportedly has enriched uranium to 60%, which is just below the 90% level needed for nuclear weapons. It recently tried to assassinate an American citizen in New York City. It fired drones at ships in the Persian Gulf. It is, its proxies have attacked American troops in Syria and in Iraq. And I have to wonder, what does Iran have to do before Biden decides he shouldn't be negotiating with it? It looks like Iran can do anything. 
and we will still be willing to appease it to get a nuclear deal. That's why I say their positions are irrational. It just doesn't add up. They just want to get back into the deal because Trump withdrew from it. Going to Afghanistan, this morning even more provinces have fallen to the Taliban. They're just really kind of making a clean sweep. Um, we've been there for 20 years. If we start, if we just, just accept the idea that remaining in Afghanistan is not in our interest anymore, what could Biden have done? How could he have done it better, I guess? Well, it was a difficult decision, but I endorse President Trump's decision to withdraw from Afghanistan because I don't want our troops there forever. And it appears that there was no exit strategy. Our troops are tired of being deployed in Afghanistan. It's enormously expensive. Biden took on this policy because Trump took on this policy, but it was done abruptly with very little notice to the Afghan government, to the Afghan military. And I, I think this gave a tremendous advantage to the Taliban, and it, it put the Afghan military on the run. We're hearing now that we're going to offer some small amount of air cover to Afghan military forces to hold off the Taliban. I'm afraid it's too late. This has been bungled so badly. The Taliban, I think there was a chance the Taliban could have been held off by Afghan security forces if we had withdrawn right, if we had given the military forces notice, if we had talked this through with with uh, the Afghan leadership. But we didn't do that. Biden just decided we're pulling out and air bases and, and, and other facilities were evacuated with hours notice to the Afghan government. It, this has just been a catastrophe. A lot of people say either that the United States should or shouldn't be the world's police force, basically. And we spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, obviously. And when we have pulled troops out, it seems that it's falling to the Taliban more or less. Is there a fine line between the United States just shouldn't be involving themselves in every little dispute around the world? Or should we be trying to help out the Afghan people here? It's a very difficult decision, but we can't be the world's policemen. We also try to um, engage in nation building and bring democracy to a nation that was not ready for it. And, and didn't want it. <laughs> and, well, that's right. And we've made this mistake in Iraq. We made it in other places. The transition to democracy is complicated in some nations. It's simply not possible. But, you know, there were other options here. Uh, there were uh, professional security forces who could have been sent in, companies like Blackwater. I know they've been renamed. I know they have some of them. Pe pe people don't like them. But, I mean, there, there were options to try to, to retain order in the country as we were withdrawing. But the Biden administration didn't care. It simply wanted to be able to say it pulled all American troops out, just like Obama abruptly pulled troops out of Iraq. And we know what happened there. Thank you for listening to today's show. Not Cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notcleared.org so we can get in touch with you. Mm -hmm.